Good morning again and welcome, and especially want to welcome all you family members or out-of-town guests that are with us today. Thank you for being here. Uh, as you can see, we're in the middle of a series called Gratitude. We'll be wrapping that up today. Uh, next week, uh, if you're back, we're going to be kicking off a series called For Unto Us. We'll be looking at the promise of Christmas in the book of Isaiah, and I'm really excited about that. I'll take a look at what Isaiah had to say about Christmas, even before Christmas was Christmas. So come back and hear all about that. But this week we'll be wrapping up our series on gratitude, and we've been talking about how it's not just enough to feel grateful that we want to express gratitude. And one of the things in light of that that we've been saying is that this church, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know this, that our church has never, has never been, and never will be built on the sacrifice, or the gifts of a few, excuse me, the gifts of a few, but really on the sacrifice of many. Not built on the gifts of a few, but on the sacrifice of many. And uh, the, 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 the gentleman here who's going to be giving God's word today, our message to us, he and his family and his, uh, his wife really have exemplified that here for us, Dave DeStefano is one of our, our deacons. He's actually, as he'll say, he'll tell you, he's the longest continuous standing church member here at Mosaic. So I don't know how he earned that dubious distinction. So um, anyway, he just kept showing up. We kept letting him back in and he's still here. So Dave's one of our deacons and he and his family and, and Stacy really have sacrificed over and over and over again in so many ways behind the scenes in children's ministry uh, and all the way up through every level of our leadership in our church. And so we're so thankful for him, thankful for his family. He and Stacy have two children together. And uh, Dave, we're excited to hear from you this morning. So would you guys please give a warm welcome to Dave the Deacon. Thank you, Pastor Morgan. Wow, that was some introduction. I uh, really am honored to be back with you guys. If you're here back in January, I preached my first ever sermon, and uh, so you're getting round two of that. Um, I envision preaching would be somewhat similar to the way I uh, approached doing laundry when I was first married, and that's if you turn the first load pink, you're never really asked to do it again. Um, <laughs> Apparently, I didn't turn the first load pink enough, so I'm back with you this morning. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving with family and friends. Uh, I spent mine uh, mostly in bed. I was battling fever, and I spent the last number of days in a NyQuil-induced fog. So all that to say is we're, we're rolling the dice up here this morning. Um, if my voice starts to go or the energy flags a little bit, just bear with me. Now, as Morgan alluded to, uh, we are finishing our uh, four-week series on gratitude, moving from merely feeling grateful to expressing gratitude. And today we're going to talk about an important part of that gratitude, and I'm going to just rip the Band-Aid off right up front. We're going to be talking about giving today. Um, If you have family and friends from out of town, you're probably feeling even more uncomfortable I think we picked this weekend because we figured your stomachs would be full of turkey and dressing and you'd be moving too slow to slip out the back. Um, probably thinking, why couldn't this guy be talking about something less awkward, like hell or the rapture, but it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Now, I acknowledge that this is one of those topics that make people uncomfortable. It's probably your least favorite topic to hear from the pulpit. Um, We've all been subjected to bad teaching and bad theology on this. Um, We've seen examples of churches using a message like this to pressure people into giving. And trust me, that's not what this is about. 
However, we can't shy away from the difficult messages. If we approach this with grace and courage and we really seek to, to, to understand what God's message is in all of this, it has the, tr- the, po- the power um, to really change our lives and to change the course of our church. Um, two weeks ago, Morgan uh, introduced the distinction between introductory giving and what he called next-level giving, which is a percentage-based giving that's consistent, that helps propel the mission of this church forward. And before I jump in, I wanted to give just a little background about me and my wife, Stacy. Uh, we've been married almost 18 years now, and from the very outset, we just felt a, a specific calling on our lives to financial generosity. And while I think it's God's will for all of us to give, we really became passionate about this, and it's something that we have uh, committed to uh, pursuing. And I want you to understand I'm not holding us or myself up as a model or an example, but it's certainly something that we feel a, a real passion to, to uh, pursue. I work in the investment uh, field, and so I get the opportunity to think and talk about money all the time. I love talking about money. I know it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but I just love it. And one of the reasons I love it is that we get to interact with money, you and I, on an almost consistent and constant basis. And the reality is that no matter how much money we have or we don't have, we tend to respond to economic situations in almost identical ways. And let me give you an example of this. I was at an investment conference about nine months ago in Florida, and everyone that was there worked in the investment field in some way. A lot of these guys were from Wall Street, and this particular conference was put on by companies that make uh, consumer goods. Think anything you can get at a grocery store. And invariably, during the breaks, the different companies would uh, set out big displays of all their new products for the attendees to sample. And one break, we exit to the foyer, and there is a giant array of junk food, just a massive display, and the highlight of which was this giant table of the brand-new Oreo Thins. Have you guys had these? Good? Well, I don't, I don't know what they taste like because as we exited, um, everybody just became, just, they pushed and shoved and, and they were taking giant bags and just stuffing them in their stuff as fast as they possibly could. A group of what was ordinarily a respectable professionals just turned into <laughs> like college students at the end of a semester. I was stunned. I didn't get any Oreo Thins. I still don't know what they taste like. Um, <laughs> And this horrifying display of humanity played itself out multiple times a day for five straight days. Uh, A couple days after I got back from the conference, the FedEx guy shows up with my giant box of all the stuff that I accumulated over the week. And at some point, I see my wife pilfering through it like it's a gym bag full of smelly clothes, this sour look on her face. And she turns to me and just says, this is disgusting. Why did you bring back all these bags of spam bites? <laughs> well, because, because they were free, that's why. <laughs> See, we all react the same way to free. And the reality is, we all tend to react the same way, with the same hesitation, when we hear tithes and offerings. So my goal this morning is not to browbeat you into giving more, um, or even to give you a set of guidelines or rules to follow, Rather, we're going to look at a few common objections to giving, um, and then I'm just going to share a little bit about our story and where God has brought us in terms of our motivations for giving here. 
and some of the benefits that we've experienced as a family. And hopefully some of our story will resonate with you and at the very least allow us to reevaluate what God is speaking to us in the area of our giving. So our scripture today comes from the book of Philippians. In fact, it comes from the beginning of the book and at the very end. So I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concerns for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So here, Paul is writing from a prison, most likely a Roman prison, to the church in Philippi in what reads like, I don't know, a thank you note of sorts. He begins the letter by thanking them for supporting him from the very beginning and then concludes by reiterating his gratitude and um, thanking for another gift that was brought to him by a man named Epaphroditus. He goes on to say that it isn't the gift really that's important to him, but rather that the gift be credited to the account of the giver. Now, there's a sense of divine accounting going on here. Um, God sees their faithfulness in their gift, and he promises to meet all of their needs. Now, in this passage, I think there are a few important truths that we hope to unpack as we go forward as it relates to the topic of giving to our local church. Now, first, we're going to attempt to answer three common objections to giving. Now, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. Perhaps you have another uh, um, uh, objection altogether, but these are the ones that tend to come up more frequently. So one reason we hear for not giving is that the church or God doesn't really need my money. Now, in one sense, that's absolutely true. I think it's safe to say that God doesn't need our money. I think I'm on reasonably firm theological footing when I say that God doesn't really need anything from us. He is totally self-sufficient. And in the same way, Paul confirms this in our passage. He says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, this church knows what it means to, to have plenty, and it knows what it means to be in need. 
And we are content to do whatever God calls us to do with the resources that he's entrusted to us. We are confident that whatever he asks of us, he will provide. At the same time, we can't get away from the reality that we are trying to build something and we're trying to build something big here. We're not trying to build a big church as a monument to ourselves, but the reality is we're trying to impact as many people in this city as we possibly can. We are trying to transform the world around us to the maximum amount we are able. And Morgan talked last week that it's going to take a tremendous amount of effort and willingness to volunteer of our time. And the reality is it's also going to take money. The vision is bigger than us, and yet it requires something from each of us. Now, this is a picture. Many of you guys will probably recognize this. This is the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, France. Uh, The cathedral was commissioned in the year 1160, when at the age of 40, Maurice de Sui became the Bishop of Paris. Now, construction began three years later in 1163, and the bishop dedicated the rest of his life and most of his money to build the incredible structure. Uh, Clearly, he wasn't doing it alone. Uh, There were funds raised from countless parishioners, and hundreds and thousands of man-hours went into its construction. Now, Bishop de Sui died in 1196, 33 years into the construction project. The next bishop was a noble man of considerable means. He picked up where de Sui left off and committed his finances to seeing this project completed. Eventually, Notre Dame was finished in the year 1272, some 109 years after ground was broken. Now, this project spanned the careers and lives of nine different bishops in Paris. And throughout all of this, there were men and women who dedicated their lives and their livelihoods to this project, knowing that they would never, ever get to see it completed. Now, could you imagine if someone from Mosaic stood up in front of you and said, we're going to have a capital campaign. We'd like to build a new church. We're going to raise, I don't know, $500 million. (laughs) And I know it sounds like a lot of money, but your great-great-grandchildren, they're going to love it. Now, in the austerity of the Western Protestant churches, this might be viewed as frivolous or wasteful. But the reality is 750 years after completion, people are still worshiping Jesus today in the Notre Dame. If you've never stepped foot in a place like the Notre Dame or St. Peter's in Rome or even St. Patrick's in New York City, it's an unbelievable experience. It's one that really can't be explained you're immediately faced with the bigness and the grandeur and the glory of God. It is awe-inspiring. And millions and millions of people have had that experience because of the dedication of a, a lot of people who would never have that experience for themselves. So I say all this to, just to show you that what you and I do, it matters. The decisions we make today have implications that exist far beyond us and will be... Um, will be impactful long after we are gone. Does God need our money? Absolutely, he does not. But can your investment in his mission in this earth change the world? Absolutely, he can. The second reason we sometimes hear is, well, I can't afford to give right now. Now, first, I want to say if you're going through financial hardship or some crisis, that's not what we're talking about. There is absolutely grace for you. What I want to address is the idea that if I make more money, then I'll be able to give. And 
On the face of it, that doesn't seem too illogical. If you make more money over time, clearly you would have flexibility to do things you couldn't do before. But if you look at the statement closer, God, when I make more, I'll be able to give. What you're really saying is, I'm willing to give you a little bit of what's left over. Despite what your word says about taking care of all my needs, um, I refuse to prioritize your kingdom above any of my own needs. Now, do you wonder why the Bible recounts so many times of people with so little giving gifts and it moving the heart of God, whether it's the widow's might, uh, the prostitute who pours the vial of perfume on the feet of Jesus, or the little boy with a couple of loaves and some fish. I'd argue that it isn't the significance of the gift at all. Rather, it's a tangible expression of a life that's fully submitted and a heart that trusts in the Lord. Also, if you think it'll be easier to give when you have money or more money, um, I've got news for you. It's not even true. (laughs) I haven't noticed it to be true in my life, and broad study of the giving show, it's not true for the country as a whole. If you were like me when I got my first job, tithing maybe represented a a night out with my wife once a week. Uh, At some point, as God uh, blessed us financially, that Maybe that became uh, a mortgage payment for the month or a car payment for the month. Or at some point, your yearly tithe may represent a, college, a year of college tuition for your kids. Now, trust me when I say this. If you can't forgo a night out with your wife, you won't be able to forgo a car payment. You won't be able to give up a mortgage payment. You surely won't forgo a year of college tuition for your kids. Now, the statistics actually bear this out. In a recent IRS study, they looked at income and charitable giving. Now, people who make between forty-five dollars and $50,000 on average give away 4% of their income to charitable causes. Now, people who made a little more gave a little less. And the more people make, the less they gave as a percentage of their income. Now, as people start to make a lot of money, that trend starts to reverse. But people don't give away 4% of their income again until they make over $10 million a year. So people who make $50,000 or less give away 4% of their income People who make $10 million or more give away 4% of their income, and all the rest of us give away less on average. The least charitable group, people who make between $200,000 and $250,000 a year give away only 2.4% of their income. If you're waiting to make more money to give, the likelihood is that you'll still be waiting even when that day comes. Giving doesn't get easier just because you make more money. Let's look back at our passage And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Here's how giving gets easier. Giving gets easier when you consistently trust him with the resources he's given you and he proves himself faithful in meeting all your needs. It doesn't get easier because you have more money. The third objection that we hear is really a theological one. I don't believe tithing is biblical. Now, I'm not going to go into all the biblical critiques or support for observing the tithe today. There are those that hold that tithing was part of the old ritual law that died away with the new covenant. I'm convinced there's ample support for the tithe. Jesus affirms it in Matthew 23. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, without neglecting the former. Now, some people have sincere theological disagreements on tithing and the 10% as a hard and fast rule, 
And even though I may disagree, I can totally respect that view. However, we can't get away from Jesus' call for us all to be sacrificial and generous givers. In the same way, the commandments against adultery and murder in the Old Testament came to include even having lust or hatred in our hearts in the New, Jesus' standard for generosity goes far beyond the concept of tithing. Now, in 2 Corinthians, it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus became poor so that you and I could become rich and walk in freedom and grace. Now, that is great news, but it requires a response from all of us. If we're really going to follow Jesus, we have to follow his example of generosity. For some of you, 10% could be unbelievably sacrificial. For some of you, it could be a complete afterthought. The reality is we have to all take our individual situations before the Lord, weigh our motivations, and trust that whatever he leads us to do, it's for our own good. Now, you might be thinking, that's all well and good. These things don't bother me at all. But at the end of the day, when giving, what's... What's in it for me? To explore what's in it for you, or at least what's been in it for me and my family, I'm just going to highlight some of the things and the reasons we've given and um, some of the benefits and motivations for, uh, for me and my family. So first, I wanted to share a little story that's been instrumental in the way my wife and I have thought about giving over the years. Um, when I was first married, we, were, we didn't have a whole lot, and we had, um, we had always heard about Matthew 13. We've all read the parable of the seeds and the, seer, uh, the, the, seeds and the sower, and that if you sow seeds, it comes back 30, 60, 100 fold. And we had heard that as it relates to our giving. And one point we were uh, praying about an offering, and uh, we had heard the Lord say that we should give $100. Now, this was not an inconsequential amount of money at the time. In fact, we had to give $50 then and then wait for me to get paid to give the other $50 so the check wouldn't bounce. Um, but we gave our offering and didn't think anything of it. And then about a week later, got a call from my grandfather. and He was doing some uh, estate planning and decided to give us $10,000. Now, I'm pretty good at math. I have two degrees in finance. <laughs> that was our $100 returned to us a hundredfold. We were blown away. This stuff really, really works. I was, I was stunned. I, this, I can get behind this. What I think is the most uh, interesting part of the whole story is in the last 16 years, nothing like this has ever happened again. Not one time. Now, this isn't to say that God hasn't been great, uh, gracious to us and generous to us financially. He totally has. Uh, we've never experienced this sort of dramatic and unexpected gifts, um, but God has always met our needs, even when things were tight. The reality is if you give to get, you will always be disappointed and frustrated. Not only is it the opposite of expressing gratitude, it's really just a high-interest loan to Jesus. Um, I... I think this sort of expectation that God would be obligated to make you wealthy will blind you to some of the true motivations for giving, ones that I consider to be more grateful motivations. And for my family, for my wife and I, these motivations are participation, revelation, confirmation, 
and restoration. You know they would have to rhyme, and they do. Um, Our first motivation for giving is participation. Now, through my giving, I'm able to participate in God's reclamation of his kingdom in a way that I just wouldn't be able to do otherwise. God has called me to spend most of my waking hours in a glass box, staring at a screen with green and red numbers flashing in my face. Um, I'll never have the opportunity to go to another country and plant a church like the missionaries that we, we partner with at Mosaic do. I'll never work, work with college kids on the campus like our ENC staff. Um, I'll never serve the church the way that Brett does. I can't encourage the way Barnabas does. I can't preach like Morgan does, clearly. <laughs> uh, but what I can do is I can partner with them financially by supporting the mission of this church. One thing I find somewhat comforting in all of this is that it doesn't require any great talent or gifting on my part at all. Um, some of you guys have amazing mercy gifts. By the end of lunch at Chewy's, you're praying for the waiter and his sick daughter. <laughs> Me, I'm just happy if they get my order right. Um, some of you guys are natural evangelists. You're leading people to Jesus at the grocery store line. You know, I listen to a lot, a lot of apologetics tapes and, and podcasts in the car, but the closest I come is having imaginary debates with imaginary atheists on my commute. <laughs> and yet, despite all that, my tithes, my offerings, those are my loaves and fishes. Those are my vials of perfume that I can lay at the feet of the Lord, knowing that he will take them and change the world with them. And through that, I have the privilege of participating in his mission on this earth. Now, if you're wanting to get uh, get involved in what God's doing around you, might I suggest giving as a first step. Our second motivation for giving is revelation. Through the process of seeking the Lord through our giving, it really does reveal where our hearts are. It reveals our character and our values. It's often said that you can tell everything about a person by looking at their calendar and their checkbook. Well, last week we talked about your calendar. What does your checkbook say about you? What does it say about where your trust really lies? Does it say that you trust in Starbucks more than the Lord? Does it say that you trust in a nicer, newer home more than God? Does it say that you trust in private school for your children more than God? Does it say that you trust in a larger bank account more than Jesus? Now, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. In fact, they're all great things. Most of us aren't deciding between funding the things of God and choosing bad things. Hopefully you and I aren't deciding between taking our money and giving it to the Lord or taking it to a casino or going down to 6th Street. But our giving will show whether we're willing to prioritize the kingdom of God even above the good things that he gives for our enjoyment and comfort. Personally, sometimes my checkbook shows that I really do care about the things of God. Other times it shows a different story. Sometimes it shows that I'm just too wrapped up in what's going on around me to, to notice the needs around me. Sometimes it shows that I'm just not as responsive of a giver as I should be. When Stacy and I, we get our uh, giving statements at the end of the year, not just for Mosaic, but from other ministries we support and, and causes that we give to, my prayer is always that it shows that we love God and we love God's children just a little more this year than we did the last Aside from how often I give or even how much, I also try to be very cognizant of how it feels to give. Do I give out of joy? Do I give out of gratitude and expectant that God's going to do something great with that? Or do I do so begrudgingly? Do I give space to that little voice that says, 
you're good, you've done enough, let's sit this one out. There's no way to get around it. Giving is one of the best barometers of our heart's condition towards the Lord. Our third motivation for giving is confirmation. God uses our giving to confirm his presence in our lives. I can think of two ways that God intervenes and reminds us that he's with us and that he's for us. First, he'll step in and he'll meet a need of yours, whether it's practical, physical, spiritual, or emotional. And the second way is he steps in and he meets the needs of another through you. There are times that God allows me to participate in the work he's, do- he's doing in this way, and it's tremendously gratifying. I can't tell you how many times that, we've, that God's put a need on one of our hearts and we've decided what we're going to do, and at some point that person comes back and says, this is exactly the amount I needed. This is exactly what I prayed for. It's an unbelievable experience. It not only shows that God is faithful and active in that person's life, it shows that he really does hear my prayers and that I really can hear him and respond. And God really is willing to use a broken vessel like me to accomplish his will. Now, for you married couples, this is something that Stacy and I do, and I would encourage you to do this as well. When we first got married, we decided that the way that we were going to approach our giving is that we were always going to pray separately. And whatever God told us, we would come back and share with one another. And if the numbers were different, we were determined ahead of time, we would always go with the higher number. Now, remarkably, we get the same number about 75% of the time, which again confirms that not only is God active in my life, but also in that of my wife as well. And when the numbers are different, um, it gives me the opportunity to trust God in my wife and uh, also be stretched a little bit in the process. So that's something I would just encourage you married couples to consider doing. The final reason for giving is restoration. This church is where I turn to when I have a need. When things aren't going well or I'm discouraged, I look to the church to help restore me. Whether it's a spiritual crisis or just a practical need, I know there are people in this building that will help. If my marriage is in a difficult place, there are people in this church that will help. And and I know that I can count on uh, in my time of need. There are men in this church that are committed to making me the best father and the best husband I could possibly be. At this moment, I know that Joanna is back in MKIDS, and she is committed to coming alongside Stacy and me as we try to instill the Word of God and godly character in our kids. And as our kids get older, Wendell and the youth group will come alongside of us and make the same commitment to us, which then begs the question, what commitment can they expect from us? Now, Apple makes a great phone, but the guys in the Genius Bar aren't going to help you when your marriage is in trouble. Your barista is not going to bake you a casserole when you have a new baby. I mean, maybe the guys at the coffee bar will, but not the guy at Starbucks. Your Morgan Stanley guy is not going to teach your kids about Jesus. Now, one thing I want you to hear is that our giving is not payment for these things. This church is committed to serving you and loving you whether you give or not. That is not what this is about. But I can't imagine not supporting the work of, the, of God in this church that has meant so much for me and my family. If for nothing else, I would do it so that more people could come in and experience what I've experienced here. Now, Morgan already said this, but I have the dubious distinction of being the longest active member of this church. I've been attending services here since 1996, and that means a few things. 
First, it means that everybody I started coming to church with here has left. Um, it, it also means that for everybody else in this building, when you were first visiting, I should have been there to, to greet you and make you feel welcome, but I was probably too distracted or getting coffee. So for that, I apologize. But what it also does is it's given me great perspective over the years. I've watched thousands and thousands of people walk through those doors Lives changed, decisions made to follow Jesus in baptism. I've seen thousands, probably hundreds of babies dedicated. Um, I've seen countless marriages saved. Families come in, grow, and leave in a better place than when they started. That's a perspective that I'm I'm so grateful that I've had to be that I have, and that I get to be a part of that in such a small way. It's something I truly cherish. Now, if you find yourself struggling with whether the church really needs your money, might I suggest a first step? Consider giving to some of the specific ministries here. Maybe it's Kai Street. It's our outreach to the homeless community. Consider giving to the Benevolence Ministry, which helps families and and people here going through financial hardship. Or consider supporting the work we do with Live Oak Elementary or the orphanage down in Mexico, Casa Viado. These ministries can take your investments and make a huge difference in the lives of people that desperately need your help. And then just see where God leads you from there. If you think you can't afford to give now, it won't be any easier tomorrow than it is today. And if you really are struggling with the theological concept of tithing, forget about the 10% at all. Commit to living a life of sacrificial generosity. We've trusted that God would show us what that means in our lives, and we trust that God will show that to you as well. Maybe for you, it isn't one of these barriers at all. Maybe for whatever reason, you just don't feel like you can trust the the leadership here. Maybe you've seen Christians being taken advantage of for personal gain. Maybe you've experienced some abuse like this in the past, somewhere else, hopefully. Um, I would just encourage you, do not let that go unaddressed. This has implications that extend far beyond whether you're going to give here. Please schedule a time to speak with one of the elders or one of the pastors here. We are committed to walking in transparency with you, and that extends to financial accountability as well. And finally, as we close, I know a message like this can seem like it's a rebuke for a church that's not pulling its own weight, that's not giving liberally, and nothing could be further from the truth. You are a tremendously generous and faithful church. I am often blown away by your willingness to get behind the the vision of this church financially and your willingness to take care of one another. Just three weeks ago, you guys raised $34,000 on the spot in one Sunday to support foster children in this city. Tremendously generous. We want to take this opportunity to really thank you for trusting in us and trusting this church with your treasure. It's a trust that I take seriously, and I know Morgan and the staff and the elders do as well. So thank you so much. Lord, thank you for meeting all of our needs. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to respond in generosity and, and, and faithfulness, Lord. Help us to be sacrificial givers. Thank you that we can do this because you first gave. In Jesus' name.